0: Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 63. We pick up the seaborne Operation story in early 1979, and much of this episode is based on the book Iron Fist from the Sea by ex-Recky Doe and his Navy colleague Arne Soderland. By 1979, the writing was on the wall for Rhodesia, if not before. The shockwave that had rattled Salisbury in 1975 as Portugal pulled out of Mozambique weakened the state, after all, all it had was South Africa as an ally, and the nationalist government in Pretoria wanted Ian Smith's government to negotiate a peaceful solution to the Bush War. That was so South Africa's detente attempts with the rest of Africa would be given a shot in the arm. The reality was post-colonial African governments wanted nothing to do with Pretoria, the apartheid government, except for some outliers such as Zambia. Its president, Kenneth Kaunda had held secret talks with the apartheid government along with other countries such as Botswana and Tanzania. Up to 1975, 80% of Rhodesia's foreign trade had been exported and imported via Mozambique. Now they had to send and receive all goods via Durban. A leftist, Mozambique was a haven for Rhodesian guerrillas and a barrier to trade. Needless to say, an upcoming attack on the fuel depot in Beira was very much part of Salisbury's attempt at undermining Filimo government in Maputo. The SADF involvement was a critical balancing act and obviously top secret. While Pretoria publicly met and negotiated and privately met and negotiated with some frontline states, behind the scenes they were hard at work blowing up Mozambique's infrastructure. South Africa contributed around 40% of Mozambique's GDP in the 70s, mainly through the income of more than 115,000 migrant workers and from harbour and railway taxes levied on South African trade traveling through Maputo. So the next mission plan was designed to destabilize Mozambique's infrastructure while ensuring SADF involvement never came to light. Because it was important to keep the SADF link secret, the opposition movement Renamo would be credited with the attack. A civil war had broken out after independence and Renamo was receiving support from the Rhodesians and the South Africans. Operation Dairy was duly set to take place in March 1979, a combined op with the SAS as the raiding force and for Reki, the insertion and extraction team. It was hoped that by blowing up the fuel depot in Beira, they would halt supplies to Zanla and Filimo in central Mozambique. The teams would be transported to Beira on board two strike craft, which would then provide support during the operation, which was to take around three days. The fuel depot was well protected by security guards and soldiers and had a trench system dug all the way around. There was also a 37mm anti-aircraft battery stationed less than a kilometre away on high ground and a large informal settlement or squatter camp had grown a few hundred metres east of the fuel storage area. Because there was no moon before midnight on the 22nd of March, that was deemed the perfect time to insert raiders unseen. The following night was also ideal, while the 24th, offered the last chance for the Raiders to get in and out without a moon lighting up their position. SAS Squadron Commander Captain Bob McKenzie was appointed Mission Commander, and as part of the preparation, he flew over the target area on board a Canberra. It was important to understand just how well lit the area was, and he discovered that most of the lights pointed inwards on the containers themselves. That meant attackers could creep up to the perimeter fence in the dark. It just so happened that Zandler forces had blown up Salisbury fuel depot in December 1978, so it was a bit of tit for tat. In fact, the SAS were going to use Zandler's technique of creeping up to the tanks and opening fire from outside the fence with RPG-7s and Tracer rounds, hoping to set off a conflagration, just as had happened at Salisbury. As part of the planning, Mackenzie headed off to Salisbury's damaged oil depot and questioned the manager about which tanks would ignite the easiest, which had petrol, or diesel, or tar. The stand-off attackers would then pick out similar tanks in Beira from photographs, supplied by another overflight by Canberra, and Mackenzie's men began to prepare. After specialist training in March 1979, the SAS headed back to Durban on the 20th of March, where they were picked up by strike craft SAS Jim Fouchier under Commander Johann Retief, and P-1563 under Commander Andrew Rennie. Commander Woodburn was Ops Leader Commandant Kinghorn, the boat group commander. It was midnight on the 20th of March when these two strike craft slipped out of Durban Harbour with their SAS and four recce teams aboard. Backing them up would be a Telstar flown by Rhodesian Air Force and two SA Air Force Pumas ready for emergency extraction if required. The 20 SAS operators were broken into three teams and moved towards their targets on the night of the 22nd March. One team under Captain McKenzie landed north of Beira Harbour at 2100 hours and began slogging towards the fuel depot through marshy ground that made it heavy going. It took them three hours, then they were set up northwest of the target. They heard dogs barking and privately agreed the plan to attack from outside the perimeter was indeed the best. These animals would have woken up the entire town if they tried to break in. They took a breather and took stock, and then began the attack. First, Captain Colin Willis and his team set up explosives on a pipeline, while Captain Peter Cole did the same at a nearby power power line. Then everyone moved into firing positions west of the storage tanks, because there was no wall there, only a fence. It was Mackenzie who set everything off as he fired an RPG-7 into the nearest tank, Then everyone fired off their RPGs or tracer and armor-piercing rounds. The tanks exploded, bursting into flame. Suddenly, all the attackers were silhouetted by the blaze, and the 37mm anti-aircraft gun protecting the depot opened fire, first firing into the air, then swiveling to fire horizontally. But at least eight tanks were already blazing, and then Mackenzie gave the order for the raiders to head back to the boats. Freelumo guards emerged and opened fire and a Renamo guide with them was shot dead as well as an SAS commander wounded in the hand. The anti-aircraft battery took aim at the SAS, missing and hitting the informal settlement and in the chaos of the battle, a number of civilians were killed in the crossfire. The SAS had to move as quickly as possible back to the Zodiacs, hearing the power and pipeline being blown up by their explosives as they did so. They arrived back at the beach at 0330, Attended to the wounded SAS raider, then pushed the Zodiacs offshore and turned to leave. Meanwhile, an American registered ship of the Lykes line was radioing Bayer, saying, This is the Sheldon Lykes. What the ffff is going on? They will feature again in this episode. The return journey was uneventful except for strike craft P-1563, which had engine trouble caused by idling with its exhaust underwater to muffle the sound. So could only cruise at reduced speed back to Durban. Eventually, they arrived back safely and debriefed. Six storage tanks of Mozambique's Petromac Company had been destroyed, and the tanks belonging to Celtics, Mobil and Shell were damaged. About 4 million litres of fuel had burned away. This was deemed a big success, but came with an irony. A South African firefighting team that had helped the Rhodesians extinguish their fuel fire in December after the Zanla attack now headed off to Beira, where they helped put out the storage fire, which of course had been caused by their own countrymen. It took two days to complete this action. The firefighting team was headed by Rodney Camp, and he was quoted later saying that Mobil had lost 20% of the fuel in its tanks and would take around $16 million to fix the facility and would only be fixed in around 12 months. Renoma claimed responsibility. So at this stage, the Mozambicans still did not know that the South African Defence Force and the Rhodesian SAS were jointly behind the mission. It wasn't long before another more audacious mission was planned, and this time the SADF and SAS bit off a little more than they could chew. Operation Boxer was to be the penultimate seaborne operation involving the SAS and 4 Reki before Zimbabwe independence was signed and sealed. Set for September 1979, the idea was to damage Bayra Harbour and close it to commercial shipping, while also releasing Renamo prisoners held in a facility in the town. The main targets were also two dredges and a dry dock. These were important to keep Bayra's silted channels open. The port is not a natural harbour and needs constant dredging, while the dry dock destruction meant there would be no place to fix the dredges. The other targets were a telephone exchange center in the town CBD and a warehouse supposedly stocked with Zundler weapons. And, of course, they were targeting a local jail. Renomo fighters were locked away there, and the idea was to kill the guards and release all the prisoners. The strike craft deployed was the P-1561 under Commander Tony Cole and the P-1562, commanded by Massey Hicks while Lieutenant Commander Arne Sutherland was appointed as acting OC so that he could build experience in these sorts of raids. Sunday the 16th of September was initially earmarked as attack day because there would be fewer civilians on the streets, although Fulima was known to patrol Beira night and day. Ten SAS operators commanded by Captain Willis would hit the main targets in the CBD, the telephone exchange and the prison. A team of five would target the warehouse at the dock. Two divers would mine the barges and the dry dock. The Rhodesian Air Force was tasked with support, providing a Dakota Telstar comms link along with two Cessna C-337 Lynx aircraft, which would circle to provide coverage when the Dakota refueled, as well as four bell cheetah choppers, which would provide emergency extraction support. A second para-Dakota was also set up to drop reserves if any of the choppers had technical issues. The Rhodesian Air Force also lined up four Hawker Hunter attacked jets just in case. After training at Langeban, the raiding teams boarded the P-1561 and 1562 strike craft in Durban on the 14th of September, turning into an increasingly fresh northeasterly wind and heavy sea as they headed towards Beira. This was going to slow them down. Most of the SAS and reccees became extremely seasick almost immediately, with the ships being battered by the wind and the seas and had to slow to 14 knots. It was then that a huge wave broke over P1562, shattering the screen of the optical director just behind the bridge and flooding the wheelhouse. The lead lookout escaped possible fatal injuries at that moment. He'd just dropped his head on his hands as he was extremely sick and the shattered flexiglass flew past his prone form. Then Commander Massey Hicks collapsed. It wasn't seasickness. He had measles. They decided to press on nevertheless, and Lieutenant Commander Sodoland took command. It took 24 hours of forcing their way through the powerful Indian Ocean to eventually reach Punta de Ouro, the border with Mozambique. The raid had been postponed by a day. That meant they'd be attacking Beira on a Monday night instead of a Sunday night, and this was going to have implications for the raiding teams, as you'll hear. It was now that a light relief moment took place, With one of the sas special force fighters complaining that the toilet seats should have a latch to hold them up in heavy seas it had hit him on the back of his head as he knelt in front of the toilet throwing up so it was late afternoon on the 17th of september when the strike craft eventually made it to the approach to makuti channel 10 nautical miles offshore and lined up with Beira harbor there were two other vessels spotted on radar nearby a smaller boat just off the entrance to the channel and a second larger ship north of the anchorage. Just before 7pm, the strike craft made contact with the smaller boat. It was a pilot vessel that challenged the SA Navy craft. The strike craft had just switched on their lights. That was to confuse the Mozambicans beacons into thinking they were fishing boats. The South Africans ignored the flashing because there was no radio transmission. Fishing boats often ignored the light signals and the commanders were hoping they'd be identified as fishing boats. P-1561 turned slowly to the south, loitering in position. After a few more minutes, the pilot boat stopped signaling and sailed away. P-1562 switched off her lights and slipped in behind a larger ship they'd spotted, using it as protection against land-based radar, then launched her Zodiacs in the dark. Eventually, all four Zodiacs were ready and headed off as the strike craft picked up a third larger ship approaching from the northeast. After a few more minutes, they realized it was the old friend, the U.S. flagged freighter Lykes Line, which had been inadvertently involved in the previous attack on Bayra Fuel Depot. Zodiacs 1 and 2, co by Captain Otch Otto and Sergeant D.W. Smith, carried five SAS raiders each, and they were headed for the telephone exchange and jail. Sergeant Burtis led boat 3, with its two attack divers, Corporal Gavin Christie and Putty Putkita, with Corporal Fred Wilkie on standby. The fourth Zodiac was headed up by Warrant Officer Ken Bruin and carried five more SAS Raiders who were going to attack the warehouse in the port. As they approached the coast, they split into two pairs, and the two Zodiacs of SAS Raiders landed on a beach near Beira from where they clambered through the difficult muddy mangrove to lay up. It was what happened to boats three and four, it was going to change this mission significantly. By 21 hours 05 they were 400 meters off the dock entrance and the two divers dropped into the water with two 20 kilogram leech limpet mines they were going to use to blow off the dry dock gate. It was only when they approached the doors they realized that these were not operated with a single mechanism and were hinged at the bottom. The usual construction was a side gate now they had to dive deeper then the Oxygen 57 rebreather aqualungs were designed. These were being used because they didn't leave a bubble trail, but were only rated to 8 metres. Now Christian and Potkita were going to 9. Their troubles were just starting, because they then discovered thick mud over the bottom hinges, which they had to remove. At this point, a guard suddenly approached the dry dock and was watched by the wreckies on the boats. When he got close, one of the raiders shot him with a silenced weapon. Crew on nearby fishing boats didn't hear the shot and seemed to be going about their business as usual. The divers had decided to use both mines together when one of the mine pins broke off. They then set the timers for six hours and headed back to the waiting zodiac, pulling themselves along the buddy line. That was at 21 hours 47. The mines should only detonate next day at about 3 a.m., they thought. But it was not to be. Three minutes later, at 21 hours 50, the charges detonated, sending a blast wave from the dry dock out towards the divers, who were still underwater. Luckily, they were protected from the main blast by the end of the dry dock, but the shock waves still threw them around underwater, and both had their eardrums perforated. Still, they managed to surface and call the Zodiac by radio. By now, all hell had broken loose in the port. Guards began firing on both boats the divers had to duck back underwater and swam out to their emergency rendezvous point where they were picked up half an hour later. Meanwhile, Captain Willis and his SAS team had arrived at their layup position on the city side of the mangroves and changed into Frelimo uniforms. At 21 hours 45, they walked into the city pretending to be a patrol while two operators were left behind to secure the route out. The raiders were armed with a mixture of weapons AK-47s and American 180 submachine guns fitted with silencers, and they also had RPG-7s. The 180 machine guns were .22LR weapons, but had 177 round magazines and could fire at around 1,500 rounds a minute. A magazine would empty in 7 seconds and destroy any target in its way. It was 2300 hours when they made it into Beira city centre, trying to appear as calm as possible walking at a leisurely patrol speed. They had no idea what had happened in the port. They discovered that Monday night in Beira is busy, and worse, they emerged from the shadows at precisely the moment that revellers were leaving a cinema. The blackface cream they'd applied and the uniforms weren't going to help if someone walked up to them, but the SAS decided to head to the telephone exchange anyway. There, the raiders discovered their intelligence had been wrong. There were many more guards than the two they expected. And worse, there was a big convenience store near the back gate they were hoping to use. People were hanging around the store. The SAS team slipped into an alleyway to wait for things to die down. A night watchman spotted them and ran to the Frelimo guards at the telephone exchange and warned them. There was trouble coming. Fifteen minutes later, a proper Frelimo patrol approached and turned into the alleyway. Captain Willis and Lieutenant Mike Rich, carrying the silenced machine guns, walked right up to the patrol and shot the leader and his two IC. They dropped dead. The Frelimo patrol stopped, but the members didn't immediately fire back, and the SAS used the moment to climb over a nearby wall, withdrawing back to their lay-up position. Another Frelimo patrol emerged, and in the ensuing gunfight, one of the soldiers was killed, along with two civilians. One of the raiders then ran into a shop on the way back to the mangroves and threw a handful of renamo pamphlets inside as the shop owner stared, but this SAS raider then made the mistake of shouting, Yeah! in English. That went unreported, but it was a slip-up. Luckily, it appeared no one noticed or didn't say anything, but the plans had changed. Back at the docks, the warehouse attack had been cancelled, while the SAS could no longer attack the telephone exchange and the jail. The teams hurried along as they crossed the salt marsh, then made another mistake. One of the operator commanders had put his SAS A-79 radio on the ground as he assisted his men over a pipeline while they were being followed, and somehow he left this radio behind. This was a critical error. Along with the radio, he'd also left codes and procedures on a sheet, which was going to lead to a big change in their next operation. Frilimo found the radio, thought it had been booby-trapped and blew it up. The team made it back to their recovery position and the exhausted members were withdrawn. Being wreckies, however, the divers back at the port didn't want to give up. At 22 hours 38, they approached one of the barges, the Matola, and stuck four leech limpet mines about two metres below the waterline. It took around 20 minutes to do this, then they were done and the divers and Zodiac headed to the smaller dredger, the Pungo, Two more mines were placed, which took another 20 minutes. Then the four Zodiacs with all team members present teamed up and made their way to the channel, then out towards the strike craft, waiting 5 kilometres away. It was just before one thirty in the morning when they were picked up. The weather had eased and the boats increased speed to 30 knots back to Durban. Unfortunately, that didn't last long. P1562 picked up a turbo problem in its diesel engine and slowed to 16 knots and it was at this slow pace that the SAS and Rekis returned to Durban, where they arrived at dusk on the 19th of September. Back in Beira, at 3am, Matola blew up and sunk immediately on the slope of a dredged channel, leaving it partially exposed and listing. The crew of the Pungo popped up on deck to watch, and moments later their barge blew up, sinking as well. It's believed no crew were injured, but the Mozambique government's pride and economy was hit. This attack was symbolic. Renamo once more was blamed and the two sabotage barges would be plainly visible just above the surface an embarrassing reminder of that attack. With the number of dredges reduced from 3 to just 1, Beira port authorities were forced to reduce the tonnage of vessels they could service at the quayside. There would be one more operation into Mozambique and this one would target Robert Mugabe once again. Operation Trample was ordered because the Lancaster House Agreement was now in full force and Robert Mugabe was clearly likely to win the next election. This was not in the South Africans nor the Rhodesian Special Forces' favour, so they wanted him out of the way. There was a raid then planned for January 1980. We'll return to that story in episode 64. If you have any comments, you can head over to my website, abwarpodcast.com. There's a link to send emails if you want to chat. Or you can direct message me on Twitter, at Des Until next, goodbye.